ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jen Leake. This is Rear Vision. Qantas used to have one of the best reputations in global aviation and enjoyed incredible brand loyalty from its customers. But not at the moment. Tonight, a Qantas departure that's actually ahead of schedule. Alan Joyce leaves the airline two months early. The government is now facing a Senate inquiry into the decision to block Qatar Airways' request for additional flights, with suggestions it may have stifled competition in the airline sector. Meanwhile, Australians can't find their bags. We've got cancellations and delays. When I tried to, to book flights using the credits, uh, the, the credits were, were cancelled, they were misapplied. Um, I just got nowhere. Qantas's new CEO, Vanessa Hudson, started with another mea culpa, addressing the long list of problems plaguing the airline and promising to do better. I want to speak directly to the committee in the same way that I did to customers last week, which is to say sorry. Amongst all the anger being directed at Qantas, the airline and Virgin have been accused of hoarding all the best takeoff and landing slots at Sydney Airport. And it's brought attention to one of the most important systems in global aviation you've probably never heard of. It's called slot coordination. And without it, congested airports would be chaos. An airport slot is an allocated time when a plane can land or take off. Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, these airports are also slot managed at certain times. So why the focus on Sydney? Anna Brakey is an ACCC commissioner. Sydney Airport is a very important piece of national infrastructure. It sits, if you like, in the middle of the domestic network. So access to Sydney is really important for new and emerging airlines to get a foothold in the market. We would like to see greater competition in the domestic airline market. We think that the best way to do that is to provide better access to the slots for new and growing airlines. Sydney Airport has constraints other Australian airports don't have, and they can put enormous pressure on capacity at certain times. But we're going to get into all of that a bit later. Let's start with the basics of the global airport slot system. More than 200 of the world's airports are managed by the slot system, with a classification of level three. Sydney Airport is one of them. At these airports, so many airlines want to take off and land at the same time, an independent coordinator is required to allocate these movements. Brett Snyder runs the Cranky Flyer website. Level three airports are the ones that have the highest demand and require a slot system to uh, prevent total gridlock at the airport. Because if airlines were allowed to do whatever they wanted there, then the demand would exceed the capacity at the runways and nothing would work. The level three airports are, are the ones that really have the strictest coordination very well-known airports around the world, ranging from, you know, London Heathrow to New York JFK. The slots control so much because the airports that are in highest demand are the ones that are 
slot control, right? You, you talk about Sydney, London Heathrow. Um, you know, you, you can fly all day long if you want to fly to London Stansted or Luton, but nobody wants that, at least for long haul. And so, you know, if you can't get into Heathrow, then that significantly hurts the ability for you to generate demand. So the, the slot system keeps the incumbents in power in a way and helps prevent competition from coming into those markets. Uh, and, and that makes it a, a real challenge for the government bodies that are looking to increase competition. Um, it, it's really not an easy thing to do. And so it makes a huge difference and, and certainly protects the airlines like Qantas in Sydney or British Airways in London. And it makes it very hard for anyone else to get into those airports. And so that's why when you see a lot of startup airlines, uh, you see them going to alternate airports. And in cities that don't have alternate airports, then there's not really an option. After World War II, airlines used to meet twice a year to discuss and coordinate schedules where needed. The planning year was divided into two seasons, summer and winter. It's still done that way today. As demand for air travel grew, and with the introduction of jet aircraft, a more regulated approach was needed. In the early 1970s, the International Air Traffic Association, or IATA, began to devise an early version of the slot management system in place today. The basic ideas of the system have stayed the same for all these 50 or 60 years, uh, which is amazing. The air transportation system has changed enormously, as you know, deregulation, uh, huge numbers of airplanes and so on. But that system has essentially remained the same. Amadeo Adoni is Professor Emeritus at MIT with a long background researching airports and air traffic control. The emphasis there is on continuity, meaning from year to year, the airline that has the slots in the previous year receives the same slots in the next year automatically. So in a very competitive environment, this becomes, let's say, an anti-competitive device. New airlines have much less of a chance to enter the market and compete because all the good slots are already occupied. Amadeo is referring to grandfather rights, which enable an airline to keep a slot in perpetuity. And it means older, more established airlines have a bit of an advantage. They've been able to get in early and hold on to those really valuable slots. Ian Douglas is an aviation industry consultant and academic. The reason for having a slot allocation system is that there is stability of schedule over time. Qantas has had a flight from Sydney to London that's left at pretty much the same time every day for about 40 years. So that stability in schedules and the ability to put together for some carriers a hub where you know that the connections are viable and will be there uh, on an ongoing basis means that you need, as an airline, certainty about having those timings into the future. So the idea of grandfathering slots is that there is that stability and consistency. The downside of grandfathering slots is it makes it very difficult to expand operations and to bring in new carriers that might bring competition. But airlines do need to follow some rules in order to hold on to a slot. 
they must meet the 80-20 use it or lose it threshold. I think the intention was to realise that some things happen sometimes and that you might not be able to operate the aircraft. There might be an engineering problem. Let's not say you have to do 100% because no one is going to do 100%. So the intention was a good one to say, let's have some flexibility in the system. But it does allow gaming of the system by carriers that, that might choose to, that say, oh, you know, I see huge value in these slots and I can't fly them at the moment, but I'm going to manage my way through this lack of capacity in my fleet uh, or this lack of demand in my market to hang on to the slots because I see them I see them as valuable in the future. It's the least worst system for protecting access to airports for carriers that have been flying a standard and stable schedule for a very long time. But at the same time, we need to find ways to allow and encourage new carriers and more competition into the market. Here is the problem. When you go to a larger airport, that airport may have maybe 80 uh, slots per hour. These are the rules for Sydney Airport. No more than 80 movements, either a landing or takeoff in one hour. Now, in the 16 busy hours of the day, 80 times 16, about 1,300 slots in a day. Okay. What happens is if you get six slots in that airport, there is no way you can compete with an airline that has 600 slots or 700 slots, therefore essentially protects the dominant carriers from competition from the smaller carriers. This is the central issue with the system right now worldwide. It's one of the reasons Bonza Airlines didn't even apply for slots at Sydney. They couldn't secure enough at peak times to get close to competing with Qantas and Virgin. There are available slots at Sydney, just not at peak times. And operating only services outside of the peak isn't really economically viable. It's why low-cost carriers like Ryanair or EasyJet are operating out of Stansted and Luton. It's impossible for them to access a highly prized slot at Heathrow. And of course, in Sydney, there is no alternative airport yet. At Heathrow, British Airways has over 50% of the slots. They are in such high demand, the airport actually allows the rights to slots to be sold. Nowhere else in the world does this. When Kenya Airways decided they no longer needed a certain slot pair at Heathrow, they sold the grandfather rights to Oman Airways for $75 million. Here's an example of what goes on behind the scenes when an airline is planning a new service. Let's say they decide there's a market demand for a new flight offering to Vienna. That's just the beginning. They're going to need slots that line up at just the right time to make it possible. Can I get a slot at the airport? Can I get a slot at a time which will connect in Singapore, giving me somewhere between, I think the minimum connect is 60 minutes, so somewhere between 60 and 120 minutes, which the passenger would find highly competitive to connect to my flight to Vienna. Uh, If I need to move the timing of the flight to Vienna by 10 minutes to better connect with the other flights out of Australia, 
uh, can I find a slot for that? Can I go to someone else and switch? Will Austrian, my you know, my Star Alliance partner, swap a slot with me that's ten minutes later? Because then I need to be able to change it. I I did some stuff with Malaysia Airlines where we wanted to change a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore from a seven three seven to an A three thirty. The A330 needs 10 minutes more time on the ground for the turnaround. We couldn't get the slot swapped to use that aircraft. We had to stay with the one we had. It's, it's as complicated as that. There are 232, you can start reducing speed now, but not less than 160 until you reach 4. Not less than 160 to 4, speed bird 232. The airport slot system is used all over the world, but the US is a bit of an exception. They only have one level three slot controlled airport, New York JFK, and a couple of others that allocate slots at certain times. Here's Brett Snyder again. In the US, um, JFK is a level three airport. There are also slot controls at uh, Washington National, Reagan National, uh, and then New York LaGuardia, um, that are restricted in different ways. Uh, but those are really the only three airports in the U.S. that have strict slot controls. I think it was U.S. Airways at the time uh, eventually merged into American, um, but they were running something like 20 flights a day between LaGuardia and Philadelphia, which you can go between New York and Philly in a train in just a couple hours. Um, nobody's flying that route. They were really just trying to park those slots and use them as cheaply as possible. You see Delta doing that right now. They've they've added more flying to places like Hartford and Providence, uh, you know, really nearby places that there's not really enough demand for that, but they just haven't found a better way to use those at that point in time. Uh, and so... They squat on them. But that's how the rules work. That's what's frustrating. You don't become a slot-managed airport until there's a need for one, a you know, certain level of congestion. But LAX is not slot-managed, and I'm assuming they're extremely busy. Do you, do you have a feeling of why the US is sort of less enthusiastic about slot-managed airports than, I don't know, Europe? They do a lot of things differently. The most socialist aviation system in the world is the US one, uh, where it's almost all government port authorities that run the airports. They take the money from the richest ones and give it to the poor. There's a kind of Robert Hood approach to making sure the little airports get funded. It, it's a totally different system. There are fewer slot-controlled airports, and the consequence of that is that you can get really bad congestion sometimes. In the US, many of the terminals are owned by the airlines that operate out of them, particularly at LAX. You know, American have their terminal, Delta have theirs. Slot allocation for international flights began in Sydney in the early 70s and was initially run by Qantas. Domestic slot allocation didn't start until the late 1990s when the airport was privatised and the Sydney Demand Management Act was introduced. It was only as things started to become busy that the idea of an independent slot agency that followed a set of rules uh, should take over the job so that you didn't find that the national carrier that was doing the job as well was favouring its own operations over those of its competitors. Slots are sorted out at an international conference which occurs twice a year. Airlines meet with airport coordinators to try and secure preferred times for their winter or summer schedule. 
Petra Popovac is the CEO of Air Coordination Australia. They handle all the slot allocation at Australian airports. So what it actually looks like for a coordinator and an airline is, I call it speed dating. Every 15 minutes, the coordinator um, has a different airline visit them and talk through their issues or, or anything or changes that they wish to make at that airport. And so it's a really good opportunity for the airlines to be able to see all the coordinators in one place at one time and, and get as much sorted out as, as they can. Slots are set for a season and the 80-20 rule is based on the usage of a slot during a season. Any times an airline decides they don't need will be handed back to the coordinator and reassigned to the next airline on the waiting list. If it isn't going to match up to their network, then they'll hand that slot back at that time. Because the problem is if they don't, they'll lose that slot and they go on the bottom of the allocation list the next season. So especially if it's a shoulder or a peak period slot, they'll hand that back. Otherwise, they'll get penalised and they'll be the last to be allocated next season. Melbourne is also an incredibly busy airport and requires slot management. But Sydney Airport has a number of unique restrictions. There's a curfew. Flights cannot land before 6am or take off after 11pm. Sydney also has a cross runway, so in certain weather conditions, only one runway can be used. The airport also has a limit on how many planes can land and take off in one hour, but they rarely reach the allowable cap of 80 movements. It's generally underscheduled to ensure the cap isn't exceeded accidentally. Asia Decretza covers aviation for the Australian Financial Review. There's a piece of legislation called the Demand Management Legislation for, for Sydney Airport, and it also talks about how many movements you can have per hour. Mm. So it's capped at 80 movements per hour, but then those 80 movements are divided into 15-minute blocks. So you become really inefficient because air traffic control will only schedule you know, less than the maximum because if they go over, they get a fine. So you've got all of these different layers of the legislation that don't work anymore, and I think that that's where... Um, Sydney is out of step with other markets. So they, you know, rather than capping the movements per hour, I think Heathrow is capped at movements per year. So you know what I mean? Like it becomes less and less flexible. So first of all, it's an hour and then it's within the 15-minute block. And when you have air traffic control issues like we've had over the last little while, the legislation is no longer really fit for purpose and they need to look at it again. But they don't because it's politically really unpalatable to think about more noise at Sydney. So, you know, you put all of these overlays over the top and you can see why no one really wants to touch Sydney airport legislation, even though it would really, you know, unlock a lot better connectivity and productivity in the country. What about this idea that slot hoarding leads to cancelled flights? Explain how someone can say that, what they're meaning when they say that. The idea of slot hoarding is you schedule more than you expect you'll fly. You may even schedule more than you know the market demand to be. You might even schedule more than your fleet is capable of doing. And then if you are really strategic about it, you can stay inside this 80-20 rule and you could cancel up to 20% of the times so you could pull back your flying by 20% and still be hanging on to those slots for next year when you think the market will be bigger. The idea of slot hoarding is that you put out a schedule that you really know you're never going to fly 
and you might not even have all the resources to fly. But you publish it and you maintain these historical slots that you've had maybe for 10 or 15 years, and then you selectively cancel certain flights during the season, being very careful not to ever cancel more than 20% of them. If you look at the routes that are the most cancelled, they're Sydney, Canberra, where you can drive or where there's a plane every half hour or whatever. So you're not massively inconvenienced if you do have like a delay or a cancellation. There's these allegations that planes are really, you know, they sell a few tickets and then they just think, oh, well, we'll roll everyone onto the same flight. And I'm sure if you've flown to Melbourne or, or Canberra from Sydney, you, you've had that kind of experience where um, suddenly your, your flight's cancelled, but you put on the next one in half an hour and it's not, not that bad. But they rotate those cancellations across different services so that they maintain the 80-20 threshold. Both airlines don't agree, of course. Qantas says the main driver of cancellations is bad weather and staffing shortages in areas like air traffic control. Another part of the Sydney Demand Management Act, which was introduced when the airport was privatised, a proportion of early morning slots are ring-fenced or protected for regional carriers flying from regional areas into Sydney. One of the elements of the regulation around Sydney was to protect capacity for regional points to still be connected to Sydney. There was a fear, and I think a a reasonable fear, that it would be possible for someone just to uh, overwhelm the small regional carriers and suddenly places like Wagga or Bathurst uh, would find themselves unable to be connected to Sydney at the start of a working day because you would have Qantas and United and Singapore and Cathay, all those carriers all trying to fly in at the same time in the morning. So the decision was taken to protect a number of slots specifically for regional carriers, for smaller aircraft, to still be able to come in so people could do a day trip into Sydney. we would be able to sustain a third airline that could help with domestic flights? I mean, what's your feeling now you've been covering aviation for a while? I think that the problem with uh, a third airline, and you see this, even Virgin and Qantas don't really compete with each other. And I think the ACCC said this a few times, where you have new airlines come in, they fly routes where they don't have to compete. Like Bonza is is flying to places where people never used to fly and where Qantas probably goes, nut. we're not going to fly Port Macquarie to the Sunshine Coast. If you were to take on Qantas, they'd just smash you with, you know, and this is what Rex says, every time they start up a regional route that Qantas decides looks attractive, they come in and flood the market and collapse prices and then put them back up as soon as they've killed their competitor. Getting a third player isn't really as easy as, as it might sound. After Virgin collapsed, I was asked by a couple of people what I thought you needed to come back in the market. My guess was something around 35 aircraft was the smallest you could be and be a viable competitor to Qantas on those core markets up and down the East Coast and going you know, to Perth once a day from Melbourne and Sydney uh, and a couple of flights to Adelaide and something up to Cairns. That's a truckload of money um, and a lot of aircraft and a lot of risk to take on. So Bonds has come in and gone into a different space and said, we're not even going to try to take, you know, head on the Melbourne-Sydney market. We're going to go and play in some of the tourist markets. I'm not sure that getting a few more slots at Sydney Airport would make a dramatic difference. The largest carrier has about two-thirds of the traffic and about 90% of the profitability of the domestic business. The next carrier 
has about two-thirds of the remainder and 90% of the remaining profit, which leaves very scant amounts of money for anybody else. Neil Hansford is an aviation analyst and is adamant slots at Sydney are not the problem. Because I don't see Australia having the capacity to, for a third carrier. I don't see another virgin, and only when that happened would you have a major slot problem. There is a slot problem at certain times of the day because there's physically no room on the, on the runways and no room in the terminals. It's slots at the time of the day is the problem, not slots per se. Yeah, so this idea that by somehow loosening up the slot management system is is going to lead to like lower domestic airfares or something is just silly. Pie in the sky. What's causing the problems? You can't run in the Australian model, you can't run a multi-level service with premium and economy you can't run that, regrettably now, on less than about 90% capacity. And that's because airfares have come down from the level where they used to be, where you could run it for 65%. The slot management system cannot create more capacity at airports. All a coordinator can do is make best use of existing capacity. Newer airlines are at a disadvantage at certain airports, but alternative ideas come with their own problems. One of the suggestions is always um, have it be bid-based where you have to pay for your slots. And, you know, every time it comes up for bid, you have to submit how much you're willing to pay. And then uh, that's, you know, you'll win the slots there. But if someone has deep pockets and wants to come in and, and take it, then they could do that. But of course, if that happens, the more they're paying, then that's going to end up in higher fares, uh, regardless of you know, who the airline is because the costs are going to soar for them to serve those airports. Demand for domestic aviation is almost back to pre-COVID levels, but the recovery for international travel into and out of Australia has been slower and several airlines are yet to resume services at Sydney Airport. Neil Hansford says it's important to keep slots open for when they do. We already have enough uh, impedance in Sydney as a uh, location, so the slots need to be protected so that when international carriers want to come back to Australia, bringing tourists and students and the like, that there is a a slot available to them to be able to operate the services they had before COVID. There's no serious suggestion or has there ever been to move away from this independent organisation that does the slots? No, nowhere in the world. In London, Paris, everywhere. It's such a political issue. The slots control all of that. That is why the airports and the airlines don't control the slots.
thanks to all the guests in today's program. Neil Hansford is an aviation analyst. Ian Douglas, a senior lecturer in aviation at the University of New South Wales. Aisha de Kretzer is a senior reporter with the Australian Financial Review. Brett Snyder runs the Cranky Flyer website. And Petra Popovac is CEO of Air Coordination Australia. This rear vision was produced by me, Jen Leek, and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano for ABC RN. And in case you haven't already checked it out, there's a brand new season of Take Me to Your Leader with Hamish McDonald. It's a podcast which will give you a great insight into the backstory of some of our most impactful leaders. One of my favourites from last season was a profile on the former Prime Minister of Finland, Sana Marin. You can find Take Me to Your Leader on the ABC Listen app. And while you're there, check out Rear Vision as well. We have an extraordinary back catalogue of episodes well worth having a browse. Catch you next time. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.